Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, I want to make you aware of two celebrations this week. Uh, some of you know a man in our church named Everett DeWolf. He's one of the founding members of Wayside, and he will turn 100 years old on Friday. So if you know Everett, uh, send him a card and congratulate him on hitting the century mark. Uh, there's another celebration that's of a different uh, nature, Robert Griffin is another great man in our church who went home to be with the Lord last week, and we'll be having his memorial service here on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Uh, Robert's had his promotion home to heaven, and we're going to be having a time of remembrance and memorial here at Wayside in the sanctuary this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 14, we're continuing to look at the first of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the ones that they took We've been traveling with them, and in Acts chapter 13, what we saw is that they had originally been set out before that in Antioch of Syria, the city you see on the far east where that first arrow is. You recall they went down to the port and traveled to Cyprus, uh, Barnabas's hometown there. They shared the gospel throughout the island along with John Mark, and then they headed north to Perga. And as they came up to the coastline here, John Mark, who had been with them, abandoned Paul and Barnabas because of the difficulties that were happening from the change of leadership to the opposition to some of the things that they were facing as they came to uh, this coast. He, uh, he headed back to Jerusalem. This was a coastline where there were a number of obstacles that they faced. Uh, there was the geographic barriers of the mountain range that they would have to scale at Galatia. There was the swamp with the mosquito-infested coastline where Paul would catch malaria. There was opposition from the people all throughout. In Acts 13, 49 through 50, what we saw last week is it said, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout uh, women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of the district, but they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them, and they went to Iconium. Now, Iconium is a major city that is still in existence today. It's been renamed uh, Konya in Turkey. It's a city of more than a million people. But here you see uh, where Paul and Barnabas went. You can see the mountain range in the background there that I've mentioned that they had to scale to get into this area. Uh, there's still a Christian presence there, though much smaller. There's the Church of St. Paul that is there in the, the city of uh, Konya, Iconium today. Uh, this was a major city. In that day, it was much smaller than this. You'll recall that the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time was Antioch of Syria, where we saw Paul and Barnabas leaving from. That city was half a million in the first century. And there was a, a major Roman road that connected Iconium to Antioch of Syria. But we saw that instead of traveling that land route over, they had gone by sea and then come up through the, the coast and, and the mountain areas. Now, in Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas were chased out of Antioch of Pisidian. And when you look at a map, here's Iconium, where it's located. And just north of it is Antioch of Pisidian. This was actually a very small uh, town. It was um, different than the Antioch of Syria that you see over there to the eastern side of the map. Now, in Acts 14, 1 through 7, what we're told is in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and they spoke in a manner, in such a manner, that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. 
But the Jews, were the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and they embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with all reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of that city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it. And they fled the cities of, to the cities of Lyconium, to Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So what we see is they're up in this region sharing. They've been chased out of Antioch of Pisidian to come down a little bit to the south and they continue sharing the gospel. And they're following their normal uh, modus of operanda. They go into the city and they start at the synagogue. And there we're told that a large number of the Jews come to faith. And there were also Greeks, those who were of the Gentile race, non-Jews, were coming to faith. You'll recall in Romans 1.16, we talked about in a previous message, Paul wrote these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is something we need to remember in our day. Those who are of the Jewish race are God's chosen people. God still has a plan for them. And yet they're, part of God's plan for them is that they need to come to faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, they call him Yeshua, uh, Jesus, a name that means salvation. In Hamashiach, the word Messiah, the scripture spoke of him. And Paul is a Jew, and Barnabas is a Jew, said the Jews need to know the good news of the gospel. And so God draws a large number of them to faith as well as uh, Gentiles. And then we see, again, what we've seen all throughout Acts. The, the Jewish religious leaders become jealous. The synagogues that, you know, had some people coming suddenly are filled to overflowing. The city is turning out to hear the truth of the gospel. The, the business people, the leaders, the, the Greeks and the Gentiles are losing influence and they're trying to protect their turf. And so opposition happens just as we've seen before. But here what we find is the opposition goes up a level because they say, you know, we're done just chasing them around. We're going to actually kill them. And so they plot to stone uh, Paul to death. He's the chief spokesman. And uh, God reveals the plan. So he and Barnabas leave the city and they head to Lystra. This is about 20 miles south-southwest of Iconium. And it's a little bit of a different city. It's a Roman colony. It was put there to uh, help fortify the region and being... Uh, a fully Roman area, we're going to see that it has all of the Roman influence. You recall there was a pantheon of gods that were worshipped in Rome, those like Jupiter, and uh, uh, his, his name was also Zeus, and you, you, we're going to see that Zeus and Hermes are mentioned here in the next part of the passage. So it tells us in verses 8 through 18, it says at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he fixed his gaze upon him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he, God, permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave them. He did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things, with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. So what we find is something similar to Acts chapter 3. There you'll remember that Peter healed a man who had been born lame since birth. Remember, the guy writing the, gospel, the, the book of Acts is Luke, Luke the physician, and he loves to give us these medical details. And so he says, this is a guy that was born as a baby crippled. His, his feet have never been able to support weight. His legs have never worked. And he's giving us this background for two reasons. One, to show the, the amazing part of the miracle. People who had grown up in that city said, we've known this guy since he was a baby. He's never been able to bear weight on his feet. And the other is, is so that we know this isn't like some of those shysters you see who do a healing service. And, and you're going, did they just plop a person in a wheelchair backstage, bring them out and jump up and say you're healed? And so what happens here is here's a guy that Paul sees. He's dialed in. He's listening to the sermon. And Paul looks at him and, and he, he says, you know, be healed. Or I should say, be healed. No, he says, be healed. So he, he gets up. And, and as he gets up, he's not like hobbling with a cane and shuffling. It says, this guy is doing, I'm not going to do it for you, ballet leaps across the street. You know, people are watching and going, oh my, what, what is happening? This, this guy who was crippled since a baby, he's born this way. And what it, God is doing is he's working in a miraculous way, just as he did back in uh, Acts at the beginning where he said, I've got to show my power in a new way to establish a foundation here. Uh, God does this miraculous healing where this city that is full of uh, pagan worshiping people who don't even know the name Jehovah, who don't know who Yahweh is, suddenly they say, what, what's happening? Now we read that they say the gods have come down and visited us. And they say, well, Paul is Hermes. Hermes was the spokesman of the gods. He was the speaker. And they say, well, since Paul's doing all the talking, he must be Hermes. And thus the other guy, Barnabas, must be Zeus. Zeus was the chief God. And to understand the background, there's an old poem written by a guy named Ovid. And Ovid recounts a legend from this area of Lystra that said there was a time when the gods came down and they walked among the men and women of the region and they hid their, who they were by looking like normal people. And as they went into this region of Lystra, the people there did not show hospitality. They didn't help them. They just turned them away. Everyone turned them away except for one elderly couple who invited them into the home, showed them hospitality. Well, the gods, to get revenge, uh, blessed this family that had these, this old couple. They were, they were honored, but all the other homes in the area were destroyed. Now, if you're growing up there and you're saying, you know, we've, we've kind of heard about something in the past where these gods showed up and nobody did anything great for them and they all got their homes torched, uh, what are you going to do? Well, it's what we see them doing here. They go, uh... Gods are here, we better do something. And so the chief priest of Zeus goes out, he brings in sacrifices and things. They, they throw a San Antonio fiesta, we're going to honor these people, we're going to have this big party. Now Paul and Barnabas 
are sitting there and they're preaching probably in the Greek language. The people could understand that, but they don't know the local dialect. It says the people start jabbering in the Laconian language. And so suddenly they don't know what's going on. They just know everybody's excited. And the next thing they know, they go, wait a minute, we're being honored as gods here. We're, we're, we're not gods. You recall back in Acts 12, 23, we saw where Herod uh, took honor Uh, The worship, when people said, oh, he's a God, he's God, listen to the voice of God, and and he was struck with worms and died a horrible death. Well, as Paul and Barnabas are being called gods, their response is to tear their clothing. This was a sign of great grief when blasphemy happened. You see where the chief priests were tearing their garments when they said Jesus needs to die and others because he said he was the son of God. And so Paul and Barnabas tear their garment and they say, no, no, we are not gods. There is only one true God. Now, you might think, well, hey, if these guys were really smart, they would have leveraged the opportunity, right? I mean, the whole city's turning out and saying, you're gods. We want to do whatever you say. And they could have said, well, let's, let's just pretend for a moment we are gods. And then we're going to do a bait and switch. And as we get people listening, we're going to say, well, you know, there's a bigger God and he's the God in heaven. And that's not how you share the gospel, friends. The Bible's very clear that we don't bring people to faith through the cleverness of our speech or how, how you know, sleight of hand we do things. You just tell the truth. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They, they say, listen, y- y'all are worshiping a counterfeit God, a whole set of them. And they expose it. Paul says, your gods are vain. They're vanities. They're worthless. And then what they do is they say, listen, there is a true God, the God in heaven. He's a living God, and you need to know about him. Now, as we look at how Paul is sharing the gospel here, I want you to understand something uh, that we've seen all throughout Acts. Paul will start where people are. Have you noticed that? I mean, think in terms of a scale of zero to 10, and say 10 is where you cross the line of faith. And there, there are people that started zero, that have no understanding of who God is. They have no uh, knowledge of the Bible. They have no background. We would say that they're at zero. The folks in this city are on the negative side of the scale because the first thing Paul has to do is he has to tear down their belief in this bogus set of gods, this pantheon of Jupiter and, and Mars and, and you know, also called Zeus and Hermes and all these other guys. And he has to say, look, we've got to get you uh, from worshiping false gods to understand where you are and where you need to go. Whenever he was sharing with the Jews in the synagogue, those folks were around a seven, eight, maybe even a nine. They had a a deep foundation of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They knew all about God. What they didn't fully grasp is how Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. And when they could show that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies, like Isaiah 53, where the Son of God would come, the Messiah would would be uh, crucified. It tells how he would bear our sins and he would die they were like oh we got it and they moved from that nine to that ten and they crossed the line of faith and so what paul does here is he says first of all let me let me destroy your false pantheon they're they're vain they're not real and then they're at zero and they're saying okay well how, how do we know what's going on what, what he does is he starts with where they are something that we see in romans 120 paul was used by god to write the book of romans And what he tells us in our day, sometimes people say to me, well, Roger, what do we do if somebody's never heard anything about the Bible, doesn't have any foundation at all? Where do I start? Well, Romans 1.20 tells us this. For since the creation of the world, 
His attributes, this is God, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, if you find somebody who has zero understanding of the Bible, you find somebody who, uh, I've actually talked to more than one set of people when I say, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and, you know, they disobeyed God and ate from the, the tree of knowledge and people are going, who, who are Adam and Eve? And did they break into some farmer's field and take, well, I'm, I'm lost. What are we talking about? And I go, yeah, I know you're lost, um, but you do, I don't say that. <laughs> but what you do is you say, okay, they don't even have that starting point. So where do we start? Look over at Acts chapter 17 for a moment. We're going to get there eventually in our series. But Paul is on another missionary journey. And when he comes to Acts 17, 22, he's in the city of Athens. And when he's there, it says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the open air uh, exchange of idea place. It was where everybody came to, to, you know, debate and share wisdom. And as he stood in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I observed that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And then he continues his sermon. And as he delivers that message there and here, what Paul does is he first points to the living God. He says, there is a God. And he is real and he is alive. And then he points, he describes how God is a giving God. God has given you good things. Remember what he said to the people here in in Iconium? He, He says, God is one who has given you good things, rain and crops, and he's providing for you. And he's alive and he's giving. And then he always points people to how God is a forgiving God. And as Christians, what we're told to do is to take a never-changing message of hope, the never-changing message of the gospel to an ever-changing world. Take a never-changing message to an ever-changing world. And as you look at what Paul does, he never compromises on the truth, but what he does is he contemporizes the truth. He says, where are the people? What you'll notice as you look at how Paul shares the gospel all throughout the scriptures, he says people start at different places. And he starts where they are, but he always ends in the same place. He points to how people need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. If he's dealing with the Jews, he says, hey, you guys are great. You're religious. You follow the rules. You offer sacrifices. Guess what? It's not going to get you there. There's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. He deals with these people who are pagans. And he says, look, I get, I get in, in Athens, you guys are religious. You're worshiping all kinds of things. Well, let me tell you what God doesn't need from you. But he doesn't need any of your stuff, but he needs, you need him. And he points to how they have to come to faith in this forgiving God. And here as he's in Iconium, he does the same thing. He says, hey, just look around you. The, the creation speaks of the creator. And this is how we're to share the gospel. As you look at people, you start with where they are. And you begin to move them uh, a step closer to their faith in Christ. People are going to be at different parts of the scale. You're going to meet people who are in the negative territory. And God may use you as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, to move the person from negative to neutral. 
The first thing you may do is help break down their negative view of, of God and, and, and that he's this judgmental, hateful, you know, on and on type of God. And you say, no, he's a God of love. And this is what he wants you to know about how much he loved you, that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And you move them from negative to neutral. But then the next person who comes along, they move them from zero to maybe a one or a two. And that's like plowing the hard ground and breaking it up. And then the next person who comes along moves them from, uh, to a three or a four, and they plant the gospel seed. And then somebody else comes along and they water it. The scripture's clear that it is a process. In John 4.37, it says, one sows and another reaps. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused it to grow. And that's what we need to remember. God is the one who brings all men and women to himself. The Bible says that. Sometimes what we do is we say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to share the gospel. And you know why? Because I'm going to mess it up. And I'm going to make such a mess of things. This, this person will never come to faith in Christ. Friends, you're giving yourself way too much credit. I mean that. You're not that good. Do you really think you can get in the way of God? It says God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. You see, it is not my job or your job to save anyone. Doesn't that take some pressure off? It's not our job to save anyone. That's God's job. It's what he does. What our job is, is to be those who are faithful, to present the truth, to plow and plant and water and let God bring about the harvest. And there are times that as you are faithful to share your faith, you may be that person who is at the last part of the process where you get to have the privilege of helping the person cross the line of faith. We, we saw beautiful examples again today of what that looks like. We had a man baptized in the first service and five people in this service. And whether it was one of the students who grew up in a Christian home here or whether it was our, our, our sister in Christ who has crossed the line of faith starting in another country with another worldview who has come to faith in Christ, both, every one of them, the story is the same. It was a process. They don't come to faith right at the first moment. When I've led my kids to Christ and all three of them have come to faith at a young age, I had to convince them they were sinners Tried convincing a four-year-old that they're really a sinner, you know? I, no, Daddy, I didn't steal that chocolate cake as they're eating it off the counter, you know, <laughs> chocolate all over their face. Um, and so it's a process. And what the Bible says is we are, we are privileged to be a part of that process, and sometimes we get to see the person cross the line of faith. And there are other times it's not until we walk through the gates of heaven that we're going to see people there that we go, Wow. I remember when I shared with you when we were in elementary school or when I had that conversation at work and I thought it was getting nowhere or, or somebody at, at, you know, a restaurant when you're meeting with a group of retired friends and, and somebody you thought was hard to the gospel will cross the line of faith because some sow and others reap, as John 4.37 tell us. As we come back to our story where, where Paul, uh, the people were crossing the wrong line. They weren't crossing into faith, but it says they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. But we see that some of them did cross the line of faith because as you look at verse 20, you'll see that there are some who are called disciples that are in the city that are going to be standing around Paul as he's stoned. Now, Paul gets stoned in verse 19. Look at what it tells us there. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, 
I'm not going to go into the details of stoning because it's, it, it is beyond graphic and brutal. But I'll tell you this, when you're done stoning somebody to death, their body is a, a beaten pulp with gashes and blood running out and fractures, and, and, and they're de- they, you know, they look dead. And what we're told is these troublemakers from the other cities have followed Paul and Barnabas there. And I want you to look at the, the fickleness of people because you had, you had folks crying out, Paul is a god and we want to put him on a throne and worship him, and now they're stoning him. And they kill him. You know, we've seen something like that before in the Gospels with Jesus Christ, didn't we? You remember when Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? And the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, this is our king. We're going to follow you. We want you on the throne. And what did they do? Many in those crowds were screaming out, crucify him. A short time later. And so here we, we have Paul that is being dragged out of the city his his body is broken and 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 you know he's unconscious for sure and he's you know doesn't even have any signs of life there's a debate was paul really dead or not paul writes these words about his experience later in second corinthians 12 and second corinthians 12 2 through 4 he says i know a man in christ who 14 years ago whether in the body i do not know or out of the body i do not know only god knows what he's saying is I don't know if I was dead, dead, or just dead. I, you know, I was in heaven, I don't know. And he says, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up in the paradise, and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, it's unlikely that Paul had died here. And I, I say that for the simple fact of, Remember, this is Luke the doctor who loves to tell us scales fell off the eyes, the feet were withered from birth. If Paul was dead and this was a resurrection, the physician would have said, hey, the guy was dead, dead. And he came back to life. Um, Now, he certainly had a near-death experience. He was knocked unconscious. And as those who are standing around him, the people thought Paul was dead. They dragged him out, threw his body out for the dogs to devour And the Christians, just like in Acts 7 and 8, where it says the believers came and took Stephen, the first martyr who was stoned to death, and they buried him, they probably go out there to pick up Paul and bury him. And as they stand around, you know, they they likely had a prayer for Paul, and and suddenly Paul's eyes open, and he sits up. And not only sits up, he stands up. I mean, imagine Paul. Again, the gruesomeness of who he is, still open gashes, blood flowing. The guy's beaten to a pulp by these rocks that have rained down on him. And, and it says they help him into the city. Acts thirteen twenty says, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, as, as they're with him, Paul spends the night to gather his strength. And then it says the next day he heads to Derby. Derby was 60 miles further south. Imagine being in that condition and traveling on the road 60 miles to get down to the next city. Now, Luke doesn't tell us much about the work at Derby except to say that they preached the good news and many came to faith again. And what we're going to see later in Acts is God was doing great things in Derby, raising up choice leaders. There's a guy by the name of Gaius from Derby, it says in Acts 20, verse 4. And when you get to Acts 16, 1 through 3, you're going to see where Timothy is called from this region of Derby. Timothy is the guy that Paul writes First and Second Timothy in the New Testament to. He was a young pastor who becomes a leader in the church, and he's called up out of this area of Derby. 
Now, as they go into this area, uh, it's not a, a retreat. They're not running from the opposition. Rather, what Paul's doing is he's showing great wisdom here. He says, I have become the catalyst. I have become the focus. And rather than hamper the work of God going on back in Iconium, he says, I'm going to remove the the focus and I'm going to let the church continue to grow and we're just going to move on to the next city. We're going to see that Paul uh, doesn't desert the believers there. In fact, he goes back to Derby and the previous cities. Look at verses 21 through 26. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they, they commended them to the Lord, whom they, the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia, and they came to, came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken there in Perga, they went down to Adela, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So the journey goes in reverse. They're down there in Derby. They go back up through all the cities. They get on a boat, and then instead of going back down through Cyprus, they head back to Antioch of Syria. The Bible tells us as Christians we are to go and make disciples. The word disciple means a learner, a follower. It doesn't say go and make converts. It means you just don't go and birth a baby and leave it out on the street and say good luck growing up. You make sure that that baby is given what it needs to grow and develop the milk and then the meat and the the care and the shelter. And this is what Paul does. Paul says, I've got to go back to the churches that have been established, these young believers who are facing great opposition, and and I need to help them. I need to help them to grow in their faith. We need to establish them. Uh, One of the things we see is that he says there needs to be shepherds over the flock. They appoint elders. Now, the biblical guidelines, there are many in the scriptures of who is qualified to be an elder. And one of them is that he is not a neophyte. The word literally means newly planted. It says an elder is to be a mature man in his faith. And we may say, well, wait a minute. These are new converts. How are they mature? How can they suddenly become leaders in the church? I want you to remember the background of many of these first believers. They were Jewish leaders. When we look at Jerusalem, it says there were priests, there were Levites. These were the upper echelon. These were the pastors of the day in the Jewish synagogues who said we were at a nine We crossed the line of faith into a 10. We found the missing piece of the puzzle that said Jesus is the Messiah. We see the fulfillment of all the prophecies. They were men who were already well-versed in the scriptures. They were already mature. They were already leaders. And now they have the complete picture. And that's who Paul is tapping. And beyond the fact that they now had a clear understanding of the scriptures, don't forget that since the day of Pentecost, when we become a believer in Christ, men and women are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who is resident within us. They now have God's presence within them to help lead and teach. So they're very well equipped to be the the elders, the shepherds who are protecting the flock. And when we read that, that Paul was encouraging them, this is the Greek word parakaleo we've talked about in previous passages. Remember, the word parakaleo means to call alongside. It's a picture of a a weary traveler who's weighted down and how we come and we slip an arm underneath them and we encourage and strengthen and carry them along and we even lift the load. Imagine Paul standing there as he's talking to these people and saying, look, I want you to know something. 
Christianity's hard. You're going to face opposition. You know, we live in a day where we hear these prosperity preachers who say God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. When you come to faith in Christ, all your problems disappear. You'll be blessed to overflow, and you're going to have, you know, nothing but smooth sailing between here and there. Is that what the Bible tells us? The Bible does not say that. Later, as Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3.11, this is what he says. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and in Iconium and in Lystra. What persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Talk about street cred. I mean, here's Paul still puffy and bruised and beaten and scars haven't fully formed in some places where these rocks rain down on him. And he's saying to people, let me tell you something. Uh, Life's going to be tough. Christianity's hard. You, you, may, you may take some hits, and they're all going, yeah, we see that, Paul. <laughs> and, and Paul tells us today, brothers and sisters, that we will face that as well. Because right after he writes those words, he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not I think it might happen, it could happen statistically. He says you will be persecuted. And you know why we face persecution? Do you know how friction happens? Friction happens when you have two things that that move against each other. And as you think in terms of the culture in which we live, if we are married to the world and the way it does things and we move with the world, there's not friction, is there? But if the world says, hey, this is okay or this is truth, and we come along and we say, no, God has a different truth, and this is what he wants you to know, there's, there's, there's friction, isn't there? And that creates heat and it generates problems. And too many Christians say, you know, I'm just going to marry myself to the world. And I'm just going to go along with the flow. Have you ever seen a dead fish? A dead fish is having no problem going along with the flow, right? It's just floating downstream. God says that as believers, we're to be swimming upstream. We're to be telling people, look, you you need to repent. The word means stop, turn around, and go in the other direction. It's kind of like the movie Finding Nemo where he turns and says, you know, everybody starts, stops, you know, and the the whole net gets turned as everybody starts swimming in the other direction. And that's what God calls us to do, not to be dead fish who float along, but to go counterculture, to stand for truth. And Paul was one who was doing that. As Paul and Barnabas finished their goodbyes, they returned to Antioch of Syria. Verses 27 through 28 tell us, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things, all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Now it says they spent a long time there. And and they needed it because, you know, they've been gone a long time. They've been gone for almost two years. Almost two years ago, the church in Antioch of Syria had called Paul and Barnabas, said the Holy Spirit said to set you guys apart. They laid hands on them. They prayed for them. They sent them out and said, go be fruitful. Go have a great time spreading the gospel. And as they left, they've covered over 1,400 miles. It's been more than 500 miles at sea and the rest by land. And it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been the modern travel conveniences we have today. They've been climbing mountains. They've been slugging through swamps. They've been facing persecution. They've been getting beat up. There's a man named Dr. Bob Pierce. He's home with the Lord now. But Bob Pierce uh, worked with Youth for Christ, and he's the guy who founded Samaritan's Purse that Franklin Graham is now the head of. And Dr. Bob Pierce said, 
Others have done so much with so little. While we have done so little with so much. Others have done so much with so little while we have done so little with so much. Think of Paul and Barnabas live today. And they, they had the, the communication abilities we had through the internet and TV and live stream and all this stuff. What, what if Paul and Barnabas could, could travel the way we do today? Missionaries of the past would pack their possessions in a literal coffin. They didn't take steamer trunks. They would get a coffin, and they would fill it with their stuff, and they would load it on a ship, and they would head out to sea, taking sometimes four, five, six months to get to their final place of ministry. And they knew we are never going home. We're going to be buried in this box that we're bringing our stuff in. We live in a day where we can get on a plane and be on the other side of the world in in half a day or less. We, We have so many things at our disposal, and what are we doing with them? As you think in terms of what God has blessed you with, your time, your talents, your treasures, your abilities, how are you leveraging them for the gospel? What are you doing with what God has given to you? As we look at Paul and Barnabas saying, this is what God did with us on our trip. You know, they could have talked about hardships. Paul could have stood there and said, brothers and sisters, I don't feel good. I've got malaria. Uh, you see, I'm still recovering from getting beat up. I'm, you know, still got some fractures healing. Barnabas could have said, you know, when you sent us out, I was the leader and now I'm not. And John Mark, my cousin, he, he cut and ran. He deserted us. And gosh, it's been, it's been hard. Is that what they do? No. Look at, look at the verse again. They began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're pumped. They're excited. They're saying, let me tell you what God is doing. He's he's not only reaching the Jews, but the Gentiles. We heard about Cornelius and households coming to faith and things. Friends, the door has been kicked open. It's been blown off its hinges. The gospel is going out to Jews and Gentiles. The church is growing. It's exploding in the midst of opposition. And as you think about that, I want you to think about your own worldview right now, where you are. If you're a believer who's crossed that line of faith, where has God put you and what is the door in front of you that is open? Who who are the people you see at school that maybe are around a zero or negative territory even that that need to move along that continuum? Are there people that you work with or serve with in the military that, that are somewhere in the middle and maybe need to move a few more clicks over to the right? As you think of the open doors God has put before you, non believing family members, Are you being faithful to pray for them? Are you staying at it? Paul will later write these words in Colossians chapter 4. In verses 2 through 6, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up a door for the word. As Paul writes this, you know where he is? He's in prison. Paul isn't saying, would you pray that God would let me out of jail? That he don't? Remember, Paul was a guy, he says, where am I? He started with where people were and he moved them to where they needed to be. We read about how the whole Praetorian Guard comes to faith and those bodyguards start impacting Caesar's household and on and on. Paul says, pray for us that God may open up a door for the word. 
so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He says this to us, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity. Are you doing that? Are you praying for people? You know, before we talk to people about God, we need to talk to God about people. Because who is it that draws all men and women to himself? It's God. When is the last time you said, God, would you open the ears, the eyes, the heart of this person? You know, I love the way God is at work in so many ways at Wayside. One, one of the things that y'all don't know about is last Tuesday night, our, our elders meet every other Tuesday night. And as our elders gathered, one of the men there said, men, I need you to pray. There's a situation in my family. Very hard things that are happening. He said, I'm, I'm going to go and share the gospel with this particular person in my family. And we as elders, as we prayed for the needs of the body, we prayed for the needs of this particular family. And that was Tuesday night as our meeting let out. It was kind of a long night, almost 11 o'clock that night. We went home. The next day, we get, we get this text from our fellow elder who said, men, the person we prayed for crossed the line of faith. After 14 years of indifference, he, he asked the Lord into his heart. 14 years. He and his wife did not give up on this person. Now, there's still a whole lot of story to be written, a whole lot of things that need to happen in this situation. But who are you praying for? And are you saying, well, you know, I prayed for him once. Are you staying with it? Are you praying and praying and praying? As Paul says, that, that God would open up the door. There are opportunities all around us to reach out. As a church, we're looking at this multi-site that we're voting on again next week. We've, we've got a, a group of people already saying we're ready to go. Many of you are praying about and giving to the, the need already. And, and here's an open door of opportunity in our city. God has you. Do you remember a few weeks ago I said open up your, your phone wherever you are and where you see that blinking blue light? That's your mission field because that's where God has you at the moment. This summer, there are opportunities for you to go on several missions trips. Our middle schoolers are going to Tennessee. Our high schoolers are going to Guatemala. We have a, a group trip that goes to El Nathan in Arizona to the Navajos where more than 20 of those Native Americans came to faith last year through this camp that is put on. There's another trip going to Guatemala later in August. Many of you as families or individuals are going out this summer for a vacation. Have you thought about where you're going and saying, how can I make this a mission trip? a personal opportunity to share the good news of the gospel in places that God is putting me uh, this summer. When you go on a business trip, do you seize opportunities? What I want to do as we close today, I want you just to take a moment and to think through what are the open doors God has placed before you and to ask yourself if you're walking through them. Now, you may say, Roger, my world looks more like this. There's, there's no open door. The thing's painted shut. It's nailed shut. It hasn't been opened in years. Have you ever walked up to a door and, and, and you're sitting here, oh, the door won't open, and somebody else walks along and goes, excuse me, and they push it and just walk right through and you go, oh, I was doing it the wrong way. As you think about the door before you, when I say push hard, I don't mean stand up and try to kick the door in and say, I'm going to force this family member or friend to come to Christ. I'm going to get him to come to Jesus no matter what, you know. That's not how you do it. When I tell you to push hard... Push stands for pray until something happens. 
And the problem is some of us are just coming in and we think I'm going to present the gospel in this real clever, slick way and the person's going to come to faith because the Bible's clear that's not how it happens. It says God uses the foolish things of the world. God, God isn't impressed with the way we do it. The life-changing message of grace is what we need to present to people. So I want you to think just for a moment of a, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a schoolmate, somebody that you are going to pray for this week and that you're going to begin to pray for, that you're going to put on your most wanted list. Don't think of 30 people. Think of one or two that you're saying, okay, God, I'm asking that you begin to prepare their heart. I'm asking God for you to give me courage and that you show me those open opportunities to walk through this door. I want you to do that, and I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to sing this final song of worship. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your message of grace. Grace that was able to reach every one of us who are here. Father, we were all sinful and fallen people. We were all far from your glory. We were all without hope, especially those of us who are uh, Gentiles in our, our race. You tell us in your word that the Jews at least were your chosen people and they had the promise of the covenant. But we, God, we were, we were far, we were outside. We were without hope, you say in your word. Thank you, God, that your message of grace opened the door to both the Jew and the Gentile. And that you, through your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, open that door of salvation. And Father, as those of us who have walked through that door, who have come to faith in you, may we be faithful, Lord, to be messengers of grace, to be those who take the gospel into the places you've put us. Lord, you've heard the names uh, committed to you this morning. You know the people that are in front of those that you've presented opportunities to. And may we be faithful, Father, to share the good news. Would we be those who are uh, sharing the, the message of hope? You tell us in your word you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to know you. So, Lord, would we be those who share that message of hope and salvation? We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.